Well, good evening and welcome to this sixth week. Congratulations on making it this far. We've been on quite a journey together. And I think that uh, we would all agree that as we've gone on this journey together and learned these things and looked at this prophecy, that it's kind of changed our perspective on stuff. It's changed our perspective on things that we should be concerned about, uh, really things that we shouldn't worry about. And then also just putting a emphasis on the fact that we need to be, be very diligent about telling those that we love as well as those that just are lost about Jesus and to make sure that they're saved, to make sure that they are, they're going to be counted in that rapture that we're all looking so forward to. But as we looked at a lot of those questions uh, over the last couple of weeks, a lot of them were on heaven. And know that this is an end times teaching. So this is really about the rapture and about what's going to happen in the tribulation. Uh, but when it comes to heaven, the, the subject of heaven is vast. And we actually have some great resources on that vast subject of heaven. And one is a book that is by Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn is an incredible writer. He reads, uh, writes a lot of Christian fiction novels. But he wrote a book, and it, it really reads like a textbook or a reference book on heaven, where he analyzes and looks at scripture and answers almost every question uh, from a biblical standpoint that you can have on heaven. So I very much recommend that you pick that up. And the, that's the kind of book you keep in your library. I mean, it is a hardback, great reference book. And a lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about as far as answering questions on heaven, it came from his, his resources. So, but, but, but instead of trying to answer every individual question that we got on heaven, I'm going to basically do some teaching, a teaching on heaven, just to clear up some things which will answer a lot of, of those individual questions. First of all, we need to understand that when it comes to heaven, there is a, a, a like a current heaven or a present heaven, and then there's a heaven that is going to happen after the tribulation, uh, a heaven that will be created after the millennium. And so when we think about our loved ones that go home to be with the Lord, let's say that they, they died, they knew Christ, uh, and we know that they're in heaven, they are in what we would call a present heaven, which is a temporary place. It's a temporary place because we've all been made to live in the millennium and the future heaven, which is the new Jerusalem uh, and the new heaven and the new earth that will, be, uh, that will be made by God at that point. But now understand that if you were to die, you know Jesus, you're going to go to a temporary heaven, which according to scripture is still a great place. It's a wonderful place. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 1, 2, uh, 23, that I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far than to be here on earth. So when we think about the fact that there's a present heaven, we have to understand that it is a, an incredible, an incredible place. And we are so uh, going to be so blessed to what that is going to be like. But when John is talking in Scripture, and he's talking about heaven, he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. In Scripture, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself 
will be with them and be their God. Revelations 21, uh, 1 through 3 is where that scripture is, is found. And it's interesting because Randy Alcorn in his book writes, Some would argue that the new earth shouldn't be called heaven. But it seems clear to me that if God's special dwelling place is by definition heaven, and we're told that the dwelling of God will be with mankind on earth, then heaven and the new earth will be essentially the same place. We're told that the throne of God and of the Lamb is in the new Jerusalem, which is brought down to the new earth. That is written in Revelations 22.1. And of course, this is what happens at the end of the millennium. So we have uh, the rapture. We have the tribulation period, which is that seven years on earth. Then we have um, the beginning of the millennium, the thousand years. And then at the end of those thousand years, we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. This is when uh, the new Jerusalem will come to earth. Now, when it comes to the rapture, understand that, and we've, we talked about this, that the dead in Christ will rise first. And then they will be united with their spirit. Okay, these resurrected bodies will be glorified, incorruptible bodies fit for the heavenly realm. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 56, and 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, as well as Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Now, this is only a resurrection for those that died after Christ's death. It says that the dead in Christ will rise. Those that died before Christ did not die in Christ and will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. We know this from Isaiah 26, 16 through 19 and Daniel 12, 1 and 2. Their spirit is in, is in this present heaven, but they won't be given their heavenly bodies until after the tribulation. So as soon as the dead have been raised, living believers uh, will immediately be transformed and translated into the presence of Christ without ever tasting physical death. We know this uh, over and over again from the scripture that we found in verse 17 that says, then we, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So tribulate, or the rapture happens. The dead, those that are dead, their bodies will be raised from the dead or raised to the heavenly places to be reunited with their spirit first, but immediately happen after that. I mean, immediately following that, because it all happens within a twinkling of an eye. Those that are living will be taken up, raptured, and be transformed, uh, given a, a transformed body uh, to, to be in the heavenly realm with God. So the, so that kind of clears it up a little bit because I get a lot of questions about, you know, if you die, where do you go? And is this heaven different than the heavens in the, uh, that, that, that it talks about, that John talks about in the scripture? And if you need more clarification when it comes to heaven and the teaching of heaven, that book is incredible. Pick that up. Randy Alcorn, it's simply entitled Heaven. Another great question that we got is, if God announces everything before he does it, why is there only one rather vague verse in the Bible to announce such a humongous event such as the rapture? I'm struggling with that concept. I like the, the descriptive word humongous there. Well, understand that, yes, there is the passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 4.15 that specifically says uh, that we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so that word rapture comes from that particular passage of scripture. But know that it isn't really just one vague verse. The scripture is filled 
with verses that talk about that event happening. Now, maybe they don't talk about it descriptively in the same way, but what they do talk about is a transformation that will happen. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verse 51 says, not all of us will die, but we will all be transformed. So this is talking about the transformation that happens at the rapture. Verse 15, or 52 says, and then we who are living will be transformed so that we will never die. And so we see throughout scripture again in Luke 17, 26 through 37. And this is the passage of scripture that uh, we've talked about over and over again when it refers to that the days, uh, the end of days will resemble that of Lot and Noah's uh, end of days. And so we, like I said, we've looked at that scripture over and over again. We, it is described or Jesus describes where this is going to happen. The disciples asked him in verse 37 of chapter 17. So where's this going to take place, God? Where's this Where's this transformation going to happen? And Jesus replies, and this is the NIV, he replies, where there is a dead body, there, were, there the vultures will gather. Verse 37 says, whosoever the body, uh, yeah, wheresoever the body is, thither with the eagles be gathered together. So in the air is what he's saying, because this is where the birds gather. So that's the answer. But let's say you say, well, you know what? I just have a problem with, you know, only that one scripture saying that we're going to be caught up together. But you, even if that's the case, you would have to concede to the fact that we will still be transformed in some way. It's very clear that a transformation is going to happen uh, so that we will be removed so judgment can come. In scripture, Lot was removed, his family was removed so judgment could come on Sodom. Noah was removed and his family was removed so that judgment can come in the form of a flood. And in both of those situations, Noah nor Lot were ever, uh, were ever judged the same way that the world was judged. They were removed. And that's what we have to look forward to. So like I said, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you have a problem with thinking, well, we're just going to fly up in the air, be met, meet, met in the air with Christ because of that one scripture. But we, we all have to say, well, it's obvious that we're going to be transformed. And what an awesome thing that we can look forward to. Some other scripture references that you can look at that talk about this is Luke 21, 34 through 36 and Matthew 21, 5 through 3. The next question says, after the rapture, will we be aware of what's going on on earth? That's, that's another awesome question. Get this a lot. Whether our knowledge of events on earth is limited by God or if we will know everything that is transpired is not specifically stated. What we can safely say is that those who are in heaven know at least some of what is happening on earth and may even follow these events very closely. We know this because of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Uh, the Bible says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every in, uh, encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this passage of scripture follows a description of those that are in what they call the, like the hall of faith. Okay, different people that lived in the Bible that are very famous for their faith. It lists those people. And then it talks about the fact in this scripture that there are great, these witnesses are looking at us uh, from above or, you know, a cloud of witnesses that are, that are surrounding us. So we would have to 
go from that scripture and say, well, hey, they can see, they can see us. They can see some of the stuff that's going on at least. When Samuel the prophet appeared to King Saul after his death, he was aware of some of the events surrounding Saul and his kingdom. We see that in 1 Samuel 28, 16 through 18. Of course, that's the, the, the story where Samuel uh, is brought back uh, through a medium because King Saul needs to talk to him. And then uh, King Saul, uh, as, as, that ha- as that conversation happens, it's very apparent that Samuel knows some stuff that has been going on, even though Samuel had, had died on and got on to be with the Lord. The Bible also refers to the rejoicing when people are saved. We see that in Luke 15, 7 and 10. And then also uh, that talks about the fact that the martyrs in heaven in Revelation 6, 9 through 10 are aware that their persecutors are still alive on earth. And then also the passage of scripture that says the multitude in heaven in Revelations 19, 1 through 6 is aware of the destruction of Babylon on, on earth. So we would have to say that we're going to be aware of some of the stuff. Maybe not everything, but we're going to be aware of some of the stuff. So the really good question. What will be the characteristics of the Antichrist? Okay, from Scripture, what will the Antichrist be like? What can we kind of look at or look toward in his, um, in what he can do and what he is like? Well, Daniel chapter 8, verse 23 says that he will be an intellectual genius. Okay, so he's going to be extremely smart. Secondly, we see in Daniel eleven thirty six and Revelations thirteen two that he will be an oratorical genius. So he is going to be able to speak well. He's going to be very charismatic. As a result of that, you know, he's going to be able to draw people to him. Number three, he will be a political genius. We see that in Daniel nine twenty seven and Revelation seventeen eleven. Uh, so he's going to know the political climate. He's going to be able to uh, navigate that political climate and, and understand how to politically get what he wants. Number four, he will be a commercial genius. Daniel eleven forty three, 43, uh, also Revelations 13, 16. So he's going to understand commerce. He's going to understand business. He's going to understand money in a, in a very deep uh, and knowledgeable way. He will also be a military genius, according to Daniel 6, 2 and 13, 2. So he's going to understand that world. And then finally, he'll be a religious genius. Second Thessalonians 2, 4 and Revelations 13, 8 says that uh, he's going to understand how to work the religious world that will be around uh, during that day. Now, of course, we know that Daniel 9, 26 says that the Antichrist will be of the same nationality or from the same country that destroyed the temple. And that would be Rome. Uh, so we know at least the region he's going to come from. Now, that may mean that he has Italian descent, or it may mean that he actually just lived in Rome or came from Rome. We don't have a real a clear uh, notion on, on, on whether it's both or, or just one of those things. Which leads to the next question, what are some candidates or who are some candidates for the Antichrist? And as I joked before, there are a long list of candidates out there that uh, could be the Antichrist. Um, Of course, you look at all of the characteristics the scripture talks about, and I don't know that we could put any one man in all of those six categories. It is obvious there that this person is going to be way far ahead of most leaders in this world, and he's going to have a lot, a lot of influence. And so we don't really, that person is obviously not emerged yet, because if he had, it would be very, uh, very evident. 
We also have to understand that uh, this person that is going to be the Antichrist uh, probably has not been completely possessed by Lucifer yet. And so he's going to have supernatural powers as, as a result of that. And so the person is obviously alive now, uh, but may not have all of those qualities until he is at, uh, actually possessed. You know, we get a lot of questions about, you know, some current figures that are out there. Could this person be? Could this person be? And one of the ones that is the most common is, you know, is the Pope. Could the Pope be the Antichrist? Well, I think that uh, it would probably be very easy for that to take place from the fact that, obviously, he would come from Rome or come through Rome. Also, the Pope has a lot of influence. And you'll notice the, the current Pope is really working around in, 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 in the political climate. He uh, one week was in Israel. He was trying to have peace talks politically between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, then he's next week he's in Washington. He's meeting with Obama. Uh, the next week he's got the president of Iran touring the Vatican. Uh, so he is definitely going through and with the political part of it and, and working that. He's also working pretty hard on the religious climate uh, and understanding that. We know that by bringing in the president of Iran, he brought in a Muslim to the Vatican. That's unprecedented. Also, he has just made peace with the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is a split of Catholicism and has been for about a thousand years. And those sides have not communicated or wanted peace with each other for uh, years, for uh, a millennium. And he is making that peace. He is praying with, uh, in fact, there's video of him praying with uh, their leader. And uh, so it's obvious that that's, this Pope is, is really doing a lot in those areas. Now, whether it's, you know, whether he has any uh, experience with commerce or some of these other areas, we don't really know about those things, but it, he could be the, you know, he could be a forerunner. And I hate to say that about anybody, but I mean, he could. Uh, obviously, he's, he doesn't think he has a lot of time left on earth. He said in an interview right around December that he felt like this could be his last Christmas and really the world's last Christmas. He, he, he said, I probably am only going to live two to three more years. And then he also said that uh, with the world's climate the way it is, he wouldn't be surprised if the end of the world doesn't happen within the next year. So other than that, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I do know that their religion or that the Catholic religion is the only religion where they call their Pope Holy Father. And that's interesting because, you know, uh, we're only supposed to refer to God as our Holy Father. And so it wouldn't be maybe a far stretch for uh, Catholics or people in the world to start referring to him exclusively as the Holy Father. Also, one of the things that a Pope can do is canonize past Popes uh, that have that have died. They can say, well, now we're going to make them a saint. Now you can pray to them. So then it wouldn't be maybe a far stretch in Catholicism for the Pope to say, you know what, I am really God and you can just start praying to me and canonize himself. So those would be, wouldn't be as far stretches for us for, to maybe to happen as, as some other people. So that's why so many people look to the Vatican on the fact that, that you know, the, the Antichrist could come uh, from there. What will America's role be in the end? Why isn't there really any mention of us? Very common question. 
I believe that our role will be limited except that the Bible says that all the countries will march against Christ and Armageddon. So I believe that, you know, obviously we're a country and obviously it says all the countries will march against Christ and Armageddon. So I, I think that we will, uh, we will be a factor as far as that's concerned. But when we look at what the effects of the, of the rapture, what kind of force can we really be when 53% of the nation claims to be Christian Protestants? 22% call themselves Catholics. If you look at the population of the United States, it's 323 million. And that means that 242,250,000 consider themselves Christians. Now, according to scripture, and we looked at this, if only half of them are really saved, like Jesus prophesied that, uh, in Matthew 25, then 121,125,000 people will vanish from this country when the rapture happens. What will that do to our economy? When you think about 9-11 happening and 4,000 people dying in the World Trade Center, what that did, that, that, was, that was horrible. And what that did to our economy, it almost devastated it. We're talking about 121 million people. What's that going to do to our military? What's that going to do to our workforce or, you know, to our first responders? Losing all those police officers, losing all those firemen, those paramedics. Uh, what's that going to do to hospitals as far as doctors? And, you know, it, it is going to devastate this country. And I think that that's, that's why we're not mentioned in prophecy. Because the United States is going to be a shell of what we once were. Now, obviously, Middle Eastern, African, and Asian countries where Christianity is more sparse will be less affected. And, and kind of, I mean, hey, at least we're in a country that will be affected by the rapture. For, for us, that's a, really, that's a really good thing. What is the age of accountability? Well, uh, I, I absolutely believe that all children will be raptured, that all children, when they die, go to heaven. Many scholars believe that the age of accountability is 13. They take this from Jewish tradition where a boy is bar mitzvahed at the age of 13. Uh, that means that, they, that in Jewish culture, that's when they become a man. So a lot of scholars believe it's 13. A lot of scholars believe that it's when a, a child is old enough to understand the concept of salvation. They're old enough to understand the concept of receiving Christ as their personal savior. So those, uh, for those people, you know, that it, it could be younger. I mean, I, I know that I've seen four or five-year-olds that understood Christ and the fact that he came and died for our sins. And so for those guys, you know, they, you know, they, they believe that get them saved young. And I think that we all need to have that as a goal. We, we need to understand that the older kids get, the harder it is to reach him for the Lord. It just is. So that's why Fellowship Church has always been so um, motivated to have the absolute best children's ministry, the absolutely best youth ministry that we can possibly have. And we have poured a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of finances into making sure that this is a place where kids can come. They can have a blast and it's going to be a place that will attract them. But that they, that they receive the Lord as, as soon as they can understand it. And I believe that, and I'm partial, I know, but I believe that we have one of the best 
children's ministries in the country. I believe that we have one of the best youth ministries in the country. I believe that our facilities match anything that's out there. And uh, like I said, I am partial, but we understand that this is the highest stakes game there is, is getting people to know the Lord. And so we don't want to wait around until they're 13 and go, well, hey, now you're at the age of accountability. We have to get you saved. Because we all, uh, those of us that have been parents of teenagers, understand when they get to be teenagers, when they get to be 13, it gets harder and harder for us to be able to reach them for the Lord. So do it now, do it early, and uh, teach your kids about Jesus and um, get them saved just as, as, as soon as you can. Why do we not live to be as old as Noah? Okay, that's a good question, but it's, that one's easy to answer because it's really cut and dry in Scripture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 says, uh, When the human population began to grow rapidly on the earth, the sons of God saw the beautiful women of the human race and took any they wanted as their wives. We talked about this. Actually, Jimmy Evans talked about this in the week on technology. He told the story about angels or fallen angels that had come and had sexual relationships with human women. And as a result of that, there was a, a, a race of giants. And this scripture is in response to that. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, they will live no more than 120 years. So our lifespan has definitely been affected by disease, pollution, higher accident rates, and all those things. But Scripture says that no one will ever live over 120 years again, and they never have since God made that, that command. Will we be married in heaven? Will we be married in heaven? So this is that question that I got in trouble for when Rebecca asked me that. And she's like, you know, are we going to be, are we going to be married in heaven? I mean, uh, and I'm like, well, not really, not in the way that we are now. And she got a little disappointed. And she's like, aren't you sad? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I may want to play the field. That was not a good response, especially for somebody that's over marriage ministry. <laughs> so anyway, um, when it comes to being married in heaven, what will that look like? We have to understand that that marriage changes. The relationship that Christ has with his church or his bride is really the fulfillment of Scripture. And when we go to live with Christ in the millennium, and it's going to be like a thousand-year honeymoon, which is incredible. And our marriage then will be with him. So our earthly marriage, it won't become necessary anymore. Because, you know, God made Eve for Adam because Adam by himself, it wasn't good. He was lonely. He, was, he needed a mate. Well, when we go to heaven, then Christ fulfills those things for us. Of course, we'll still know our spouse. Of course, there won't be anybody uh, that we've ever known that we will know better than them. And we will always have a very special relationship with our spouse. But the marriage that we have with them will not look like the marriage that we have with them now. Hopefully that answers that. What is the story of the two witnesses in tribulation? Well, Revelations chapter 11 speaks of two evangelists that will have supernatural powers. Uh, nothing will be able to hurt them. Uh, they, will, they will preach the word of God in Jerusalem. They will kind of be the leaders of the 144,000 sealed Jews who will be the evangelists to the world during the tribulation as well. And those uh, sealed, or what they call sealed Jews, 
will also be protected. But these two individuals will actually have supernatural powers to be able to defend themselves against anybody that will come against them. Uh, the 144,000 will not be able to be touched either. But these guys talks about will be able to breathe fire and uh, destroy anybody that comes against them. And the, the theories or theological look at this is that it will probably be Elijah or Enoch or Moses, two of those three. Most scholars say Elijah and Enoch because Elijah and Enoch didn't actually die. They just were brought up into heaven. And so we know that from scripture that three and a half years into the tribulation, uh, these particular witnesses will have been there during that period of time. And then the Antichrist will kill them and then they will raise from the dead three days later. So the reason that a lot of people believe it's Elijah and Enoch is because they will have, still have earthly bodies and they will still be able, they will still be mortal and can be uh, killed. Uh, some people believe it's, it will be Moses, and the reason that they believe that is because Moses was the prophet of judgment, and well, that's what happened when he was on earth was judgment against Egypt, and then also he appeared with Elijah. Uh, in a vision. So uh, they've appeared together. So, so, so that's some of the theories there. Uh, it will be most likely two of, of those three people. Will we know loved ones after we are called up? Yes. We'll know each other. We'll be able to recognize each other. So uh, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about that. Will we feel sad about those that were left behind or that aren't in heaven? And man, that's something that you think about, isn't it? The Bible is very clear that, that there will be no sorrow in heaven. Revelations 21, 3-4 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will remove all of their sorrows and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. For the old world and its evils are gone forever. So this tells me that God is going to give us the ability to not have to see those that we, we've lost. Uh, he's going to supernaturally do that for us. Because there's no way that there can be no sorrow in heaven if we have loved ones that are in hell. So he's going to fix that for us somehow. Thank God. Next question is, what about our pets in, in the rapture? Well, this is, a, a, you know what, a really good question. And some people will go, oh, come on, you know, it's pets. What are you, uh, what are you worried about your pets for? Well, if you've had pets, you know how special they are. And, you know, for me, man, I, I love my little dog. I've loved all my little animals. And I have this little cockapoo, and his name is Crash, and he's just so sweet. And I can't imagine not having him in heaven or, or imagine losing him in the rapture. I mean, those, those are not good feelings. And I know that one of the arguments is, is that for animals, they don't have a spirit like us. So as a result of that, that they won't be raptured like we will. And it's interesting because that was kind of always my answer. Um, and it was also always my answer. But, you know, when you get to heaven, it's heaven. So if God really wants you to have or if you really want to have a pet, that God will provide you that pet. But it's uh, in this book, Heaven, it actually addresses uh, the issue or the question when it comes to animals. And this is found in uh, an excerpt from his book on page 397 as well as 400. And I want to read that to you. Christ proclaims from his throne on the earth, 
Behold, I am making all things new. That comes from Revelations 21.5. It's not just people who will be renewed, but also the earth and all things in it. Do all things include animals? Yes. Horses, cats, dogs, deer, dolphins, and squirrels, as well as the inanimate creation will be beneficiaries of Christ's death and resurrection. Christ's emphasis isn't on making new things, but on making old things new. It's not about inventing the unfamiliar, but about restoring and enhancing the familiar. Jesus seems to be saying, I'll take all I made the first time, including people and nature and animals and the earth itself, and bring it back as new, fresh and indestructible. Then he says, animals aren't nearly as valuable as people, but God is their maker and has touched many people's lives through them. It would be simple for him to recreate Hepet in heaven if he wants to. He's the giver of all good gifts, not the taker of them. If it would please us to have a pet restored to the new earth, that may be sufficient reason. Consider parents who've acquired a pet because of their child's request. God is better than we are at giving good gifts to his children, according to Matthew 7, 9 through 11. We know animals will be on, earth, on the new earth, which is a redeemed and renewed old earth, in which animals had a prominent role. People will be resurrected to inhabit this world. As we saw, Romans 8, 21 through 23 assumes animals as part of a suffering creation eagerly awaiting deliverance through humanity's resurrection. This seems to require that some animals who lived, suffered, and died on the old earth must be made whole on the new earth. Wouldn't some of those likely be our pets? It seems God could do one of three things on the new earth. Number one, create entirely new animals. Number two, bring back to life animals that have suffered in our present world, giving them immortal bodies. This could be a recreating or necessarily, or not necessarily resurrecting. And then number three option is to create some animals brand new from scratch and bring back to life some old ones. So when you read that about Andy, uh, that Randy Alcorn says, it, it makes absolute sense and it really gives you hope because you know, I think all of us want to experience uh, animals and the love that they can give and, and uh, they enhance our life in such a great way on earth that we really must assume that we're going to be able to see them again in heaven. Okay, next question. When and where does the Holy Spirit come and leave? The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he will be removed the day of the rapture, which is written about in 2 Timothy 5 through 7. That's what, uh, when the scripture talks about that the restrainer will be removed, that is the Holy Spirit and the church. And can you imagine what this world is going to be like without the Holy Spirit and without the church? Wow. Scary place. In the millennium, will people still have kids? Kids grow up, get married, etc. For those that survive the tribulation, they still will be mortal in the millennium. Okay, so there will be, there'll probably be people on earth that are pregnant during the tribulation that will be saved and give birth in the millennium. But because there will be no sin and our desires will completely change, the thought of marriage and family as usual will probably not apply. 
Uh, it will be interesting, though, and passages, there's passages of scriptures that say that, that maybe those that, uh, that are raptured um, or those that are, uh, have been in heaven before will actually be uh, managers of or over those that are mortals in the millennium. Now, of course, uh, most people, most scholars believe that those that make it into the millennium that are still mortals will not die before the end of the millennium because the earth will be perfect. There won't be any disease. We know that they can get sick on, on, um, during the millennium if they're mortals. But when that happens, the Bible talks about the fact that they can be brought to Christ and Christ will heal them. So that's a pretty interesting concept when you think about it. But when it comes to families as normal, it, we are a family. Every, we're, we're the family of God. We're the family of Christ. And so the family unit will look just a little different. This question says, I'm almost 30. Should I close out my retirement since I obviously won't need it? Remember, we said in this uh, series, live your life. Plan as if you're going to be here for another 100 years, but be ready if he comes tomorrow. We've taught that we, are, we believe that we are in the end days, that we have, you know, at the most 12 years left if, uh, if the generation is 80 to 90 years. And really, when you look at what's going on in the world, we know that it could happen at any time, but it may not. So we still need to plan our lives and don't go live in a cave somewhere and sell all of your stuff. Okay, we've, it's not wise. We need to be smarter than that, which I always get the question too when it comes to that is, you know, should I save up stuff? Should I, should I um, be kind of a prepper? Because the Old Testament very much talks about that you should plan and that you should uh, save up supplies and those kind of things. And, and sure, there's nothing wrong with that. Let's say, I mean, we could lose electricity for a week for some strange reason and have nothing to do with the rapture have nothing to do with tribulations. It's just the way things are. So yes, it's good to have water. Yes, it's good to have a little extra food. Yes, it's maybe good to have an alternative source of electricity. Those things are all good. That's just planning. And that's what the Bible talks about in the Old Testament to be ready because droughts are going to come. And during that day, man, everything, their livelihood was based on their crops and their livestock. So very much so they needed to stock up on grain. Very much so they needed to stock up on on food and water and those kind of things, because when the droughts came, they would be ready for it. But for those of us that are saved, we've pretty much, I really feel like we've stressed over and over again in this, in this series. And I believe we will be raptured before the tribulation. We'll be raptured before that wrath comes. So if that's the case, you know, we don't need seven years of stuff because we're going to be in heaven partying with, with Jesus. If you're not saved, absolutely prep. Okay. <laughs> in the millennium, the Bible says that mankind rests. What does that look like? Ah, uh, you know, I love that description. But I think that sometimes when we look at that description, we think, oh, we're just going to lay around in a cloud and kind of sleep all day. You know, I'm going to get tired of that. Well, if we're on a new earth it will resemble what the earth looked like at creation. It's going to look like Eden. And this doesn't mean that we're going to go back to a primitive way of living. Okay, so you don't have to go back. People think, well, you know, I want to walk around like a caveman. And no, 
I mean, we will still have all, all our advancements that we have, but the world will be perfect. And what we have to understand is that this is the honeymoon, and there's nothing greater in the marriage than the honeymoon, right? I mean, that's one of the best parts of it. And we're going to have a thousand-year honeymoon period with Christ. And I believe that that rest part is um, whatever fills your tank, whatever fills you emotionally, whatever fills you spiritually, whatever fills you physically. I mean, playing whatever it is you like to play, spending time with whoever you want to spend time with. I mean, I really cannot wait to go fishing with my dad. I mean, I, I, I miss him so much. And to think that we're going to be able to fish together, what, what will fill my tank more than that? I mean, except for just being at the f- foot of Jesus. Can you imagine uh, picking Abraham Lincoln's brain? And what were you thinking, man, when you were in that the situation and you know, your country is divided in half? And man, is this this war? I mean, what was that like? And trying to manage a new, a new nation. And, you know, I, you just, wouldn't that be cool? Or, you know, talking to King David about his life. And then, and then to think about the worship we're going to have. I mean, the worship we're going to have is incredible. And there's nothing as filling as experiencing the Holy Spirit in an intimate way. And now we won't have any, and then we won't have anything in the way of that. Our flesh won't be in the way. Sin won't be in the way. Demons won't be in the way. It refreshes, refuels, and gives us new perspective. Now, can you imagine what it will be like in the millennium? And maybe you like to read. Could you imagine the library that you're going to have to be able to, to read? Maybe one of the things that you see is the most restful picture of, in your life is reading on a beach somewhere. We'll pick one. This morning, I'd like to do my devotion at Megan's Bay on the island of St. Thomas. And tomorrow, maybe Grand Wailea in Maui. And the day after that, maybe the, the Seven Mile Beach in Negril, Jamaica. A pretty restful picture, isn't it? There are certain things that we do and certain people that we can hang out with that are so filling that when we're through doing that activity or spending time with that person, we will feel refreshed and rested. That's what I think the millennium is going to look like. Something to look forward to. How could or how can a fallen angel mate with human women? Well, I don't know exactly how this works. Um, and I won't know until Jesus comes. But the Bible says that we were made just lower than angels. That's in Psalms 8, 5. And we are made in the image of God. So angels must be similar to us in a way with the ability to get mortal women pregnant. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how that works, but uh, obviously it did. And it spawned a whole race of giants in the Old Testament. As an angel, how did evil come into Satan? If they were all in heaven with God, how did evil get there? Remember that we all have a free will choice. Lucifer brought evil to heaven when he decided to make a free will choice to rebel against God and wanted to be greater than the creator. So Lucifer brought evil into heaven. 
which goes to, you know, the question now, will we have a free will choice in the millennium? Will we have a free will choice in heaven? I would assume we would. If angels have a free will choice, then, then we would too. But I, I really don't know about that. Since the Lord is coming soon, what would be the best use of our time? Live your life. Live your life for the Lord and be a disciple, but live your life. I mean, live it with a little more uh, enthusiasm as far as the things that are important and the things that need to be done. Live it as though you obviously realize that you don't have another 30 or 40 years, but you do have a time frame here. And you want to take advantage of that. Get married, go to school, buy a home, live your life. The Bible says that we will reign forever with Jesus. What what does that mean, reign? Well, during this present age, we're being tested by God to determine our future position of authority and responsibility in the kingdom. According to Luke 19, 11 through 26, we will be given rulership in the kingdom based on what we did with the treasures and talents God entrusted to us in this life. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3 says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, you are not competent to constitute the smallest law courts. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So what it's saying there is that, uh, you know, each one of us should be able to understand and deal with just small issues that uh, on right and wrong and that we're going to be responsible for judging even angels. I know a lot of times when we read that scripture too, people get a little nervous because they're like, well, did I do enough? Did I, did I say enough? Did I, did I use my talents enough? And I, I think we got to remember that when we're given gifts and when we're given talents, God gives us those gifts and talents to provide for our family and to serve him or to serve him and provide for our family, whichever way you want to put it. And so with what God has given you, have you done that? You know, that's what you have to look at. And I've seen people before that have just beat themselves up and said, you know, when I was in high school, I would have never thought that I would have done this for a living. And I'm a little disappointed in myself. And, and I tell people, you know, you're not defined by what you do from nine to five. That's just what gives you a paycheck to support your family. But what are you, how are you with your kids? How much do you pour into them? You know, you, you coach that softball team. <laughs> you coach that little soccer team. You spend time with them. You pour into them. I mean, that's what God is talking about. And when you serve him in, in any capacity, understand this. It's like, you know, a lot of times people think, well, you know, as a pastor, and you're teaching and you, man, you have this great altar call and you get 20, 30, 40, 50 people saved. I mean, man, that's what it's all about. But understand when, when people get saved here at Fellowship or when people get discipled here at Fellowship or people have uh, get deliverance here at Fellowship, fellowship or healing, that that's a team win. That person could have not even been in there to hear that message unless we had children's workers watching their kids. Unless we had ushers that were finding them a seat. Unless we had uh, security that was keeping them safe. Unless we had people that had cleaned the facility so that we could sit down and, and, and not be walking around in filth. So when, when good stuff happens at fellowship and you're serving, regardless of the capacity, and something good happens, it's a, it's a team win. And I think you're going to be very surprised in heaven how many jewels you actually have in your crown 
and how you will be rewarded. This can be found uh, in more detail in Daniel chapter 7, verses 18, 22, and 27, Revelations 2, 26 through 28, and Revelations 24 and 6. If Satan knows the outcome, why does he bother? How could he hope to beat God? Well, Satan knows that uh, what has been written and prophesied about him, but you know he doesn't mean he believes it. And he is known as the great deceiver and the father of lies, and I believe he is living in his own deceit. He's delusional. And he believes that he really will defeat Jesus in the end. He believes that he really has built an army big enough to be able to do that. So I think he's just, he's the father of lies. And you've probably seen people before that have a lying issue and they lie so much that they don't even realize they're doing it anymore. I believe that that's how deluded Lucifer is. Christians believe that the earth is 6,000 years old and scientists believe that it is millions. So what's the difference? Well, most of what science determines in time comes from a process called carbon dating which has been proven time and time again to be very inaccurate. So that's part of the problem. They tested that. They've tested that before, where they've brought somebody that was a carbon dater, a, a bone of a woman who had died like 40 or 50 years ago and wanted it to be carbon dated, and it came back that it was thousands and thousands of years old. So know that carbon dating is not really accurate. But let's just say that it is, okay? Let's just say that it is extremely accurate. What we have to understand is, is that when God created the earth, he created it in its mature form. So he made the trees, the plants, the animals in an in a, in a adult form so that it could sustain itself. When he made Adam and Eve, he didn't make a little, little Adam, little, you know, little guy and little Eve. He made them in their adult, uh, mature state. And so... If that is the case, and we know that to be true, then if you were dating the earth, that it, it would appear that it is millions of years old. Because what God did in seven days uh, was so miraculous that it looks like it's millions of years old. So that really helps understand and, and explain that uh, when, when you look at it that way. Why does Satan get to come back after a thousand years? Well, because those that were born in the millennium need to be given that same free will choice that we were. And the scripture says that he will actually recruit a group of people and they will actually try to assassinate Christ. So obviously, I guess they needed that free will choice, which is amazing to me. Do angels or demons die in the battle of Armageddon? And if not, why go to fight? Well, spirits don't die, including your own. You will, your spirit will do eternity somewhere. They can be bound or banished, and that's what will happen to the demonic. Uh, they'll be banished to hell. That's what will happen in, in, in the battle of Armageddon. But uh, that, no, spirits, spirits don't die. You can't kill them. They are eternal. So we had a, a couple other questions. Uh, one that came in of, you know, with the state of the world the way it is and the fact that politicians really can't fix anything, do we still need to vote? Absolutely, you need to vote. Uh, uh, people died for our right to vote. And if we are here for another 12 years, 
How many terms is that? That's three presidential terms. So yes, we need to vote. That's uh, 24, um, or sorry, so that's, uh, that's three presidential terms. That's six uh, congressional terms. So absolutely, yes, we, we, need, we need to vote. And you know what, guys? We need to vote for the most ethical candidate, the most moral one. And I know people kind of laugh and scoff at that. So sometimes it is, you know, we vote for the lesser of two evils. And um, we find out, you know, who, who stands on what side of what issues that are moral issues. And we vote for them. Don't, fight, don't vote for somebody that's going to promise you stuff. How has that worked for us in the past? It doesn't. Uh, but vote for those that are the most ethical or most moral. Vote for them, of course, if they're, or if they're Christians. Know that during the Old Testament, when Israel was being led by a king that was righteous, Israel prospered. If they were led by a king that was unrighteous, Israel didn't prosper. Leadership, that stuff trickles down. And so we need to be praying for our leaders, and we need to be praying that the right people get into office. Uh, because we want to be as moral as we possibly can. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this course. I know I have loved teaching it. I know that we didn't get everybody's questions answered uh, just because there were so many, but I do want to just tell you how much uh, I appreciate you guys coming uh, and know that uh, we need to be very diligent about praying for those that we love and praying for those that don't know Christ and asking God to give us the opportunity to be able to share our faith. And so as we close this evening, I want to make sure that I pray uh, that God would just give us that boldness and uh, pray for those that, that we know and love that don't know him yet. So God, we come before you. We thank you so much for giving us these signs uh, so that we might be able to know the season. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us a hope and a future and that you love us so much that, man, we are in this chosen, chosen generation. How cool is that, that we are in the chosen generation, that we, we wouldn't have to die? How incredible that is. But, Lord, with that responsibility, I pray that you would help us to uh, do the things that you'd want us to do, say the things you'd want us to say, minister to those that you would want us to minister to, be a lamp unto our feet, show us the steps that we need to take. And I pray, Lord, that every person here, Everybody, everybody that's listening to this series, whether it's uh, live or uh, on a CD or in a podcast, that we would all bring to mind people that don't know you yet or maybe those that are running from you and that we would intercede for them. We would pray for them. And God, that you would put people in their lives that have influence that could lead them to you. And Lord, that you would give us the influence and the opportunity and the wisdom to be able to tell those that we love about Jesus, about your son. So Lord, we give you these things. We praise you for this time that we've had together. We pray, Lord God, that we would do the things that you'd want us to do before you, before you come back. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for attending this series.